The single most important factor in a person's overall health is not the care they receive. It comes from the conditions where people are born, grow, work, live, and age. These social determinants of health include safe and stable housing, access to food and transportation, social connections, safety and environmental exposure. Hospitals recognize that addressing the social determinants of health is a key strategy to drive value and advance overall health. Welcome to Advancing Health, a podcast brought to you by the American Hospital Association. I'm Tom Petterly, senior writer at AHA and your host. Today we're in Boston at an executive forum presented by AHA's The Value Initiative. It's titled Addressing Disruption Through Innovation and Value, a meeting that has brought together some great minds and active leaders in the healthcare field. Creating programs designed to address social determinants of health has the ability to improve value by lowering cost improve outcomes, and enhance the patient experience, precisely what hospitals and health systems are working to achieve. We're fortunate to have two experts here today who are well-equipped to explore how the traditional care responsibilities of hospitals are morphing to touch patients' lives in more comprehensive ways. Brian Granulati is president and CEO of Atlantic Health System, an integrated health delivery system that serves a region of nearly 5 million people in New Jersey. He's also chairman of the American Hospital Association's Board of Trustees and has spent nearly 40 years leading healthcare organizations, large and small. Brian is a firm believer that the current market disruption in healthcare can ultimately be a good thing for hospitals and health systems. Kate Walsh is president and CEO of the Boston Medical Center Health System, a private, non-for-profit academic medical center with a community-based focus. BMC is the primary teaching affiliate of Boston University School of Medicine. It's staffed by approximately 5,400 employees and 750 physicians, and, as you'll hear in a moment, it's doing some pioneering work in the area of social determinants of health. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Brian and Kate. Thanks, Tom. So to start with, we've learned in recent years about the role of SDOH, I'm still getting used to that term, in overall patient health. People might be surprised how really big of a factor this is. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Right now in the United States of America, in the year 2019, your zip code is more predictive of your health outcomes than your genetic code, which I think is sort of a staggering sentence. And it really speaks to the fact that by some estimates, 80% of our healthcare costs are driven by the so-called social determinants of health. That means where you live, work, grow, worship, pray, all the things Tom said, but also the structures and supports in the communities where that you reside in have a far greater impact on your health than what happens when you come to one of our great hospitals. Mm -hmm. and see one of our great providers. And that's pretty humbling for a system that has really prided itself in many years on excellence in meeting the needs of our patients. Even at Boston Medical Center, where we spend a lot of time thinking about access to care for low-income patients and, and spend a lot of time and money investing in addressing the challenges, social determinants of health, we believe we're only scratching the surface. You know, that notion of your zip code, and I saw that at my time at Hopkins. We had an opportunity to through the uh, CMMI process, have a grant similar to maybe some of the Avon grants where mm -hmm. you engage the community differently and, and you can really understand that. But the tough thing 
sometimes are the conversations that occur internally about really what is a hospital or health system's role in this? Because obviously in our country, there are so many other resources that are available, but somehow we can't seem to touch them. Right. It's, it's really true. That's actually the tricky part. As a healthcare leader, where do our responsibilities begin and end? You know, we're up against a really formidable foe. We're up against poverty, intergenerational poverty in some cases. And we think about this a lot, like what's our responsibility and what just has to be somebody else's responsibility? Because remember, when somebody comes into one of our places, we have to execute perfectly. So somebody breaks their hip, falls down and breaks their hip because they trip in a pothole on a street in, in Dorchester and they come to our emergency room. We have to take really good care of them. We put them on a cold, hard operating table. We do unspeakable things to them. We wake them up. I mean, you know, and then, and that we have to do that perfectly every time. Are we responsible for the pothole? Where do our responsibilities begin and end? And so I, what we've come to understand is that the most important thing we can do is ask our patients and ask the communities we serve. So we now have screened with something called a Thrive Screen or 57,000 individual patients. And we ask them eight questions. Do you have enough food? Do you, do you have enough food generally? Do you have enough food tonight? Where do you live? Are you worried about losing where you live? Do you live in a house, in a bus station, in a park? You know, we, you know, we kind of call out things like homelessness. So we've begun to realize that one in 10 people in our hospitals are homeless. So we should make investments in housing. When you make an investment in housing, you end up in the voucher world which as complicated as healthcare is, I would submit housing vouchers are even more complicated. Mm -hmm. How you get them, people wait in lines for years, decades in some cases. So again, should our patients have higher priority because they were once sick? And how do we create, particularly in a market like Boston, where the housing costs have really taken off, what again is our responsibility, not only for our patients, but for our employee base? You know, I think housing is a, a great example. Food is another example. It was remarkable to me, again, my experience uh, both in Baltimore and in York, Pennsylvania, the concept of a food desert. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know. I think at uh, Boston Medical Center, we have taken strides over the last decade to really address that. And we think of having sort of three levels of approaches to food. The first is the most basic. Do you need food tonight? We will get it to you. We have a, a prescription-driven food bank where physicians can write a note for, for if you I say, I don't have food. We know what allergies you have. It's in your medical record. You can come twice a month to pick up a three-day emergency supply for your household. And that really addresses the kind of hunger we see in this country, which tends to be episodic. Your benefits run out at the end of the month. You're a refugee family uh, move, moving in with your relatives. You can bring food to the, literally to the table. The second phase is going out to the communities where there are food deserts. So we work with a company called Fresh Truck mm. and um, and we have a, a rooftop farm at our hospital. So we have in our desire to green up our and, and, and have a more sustainable energy approach to energy because hospitals are energy hogs. We, somebody said, well, we should put a, a green roof on, on this power plant. And we thought, okay. And somebody was like thinking of planting like a meditation garden. And one of our board members said, don't our patients need food? Mm -hmm. And um, I'm thinking, oh no, I'm going to be weeding, you know, <laughs> but you know, on the roof of this, garden in Boston there in, the, in this building in Boston there's 56 we produce 5600 pounds of food every year wow. um, yeah mm -hmm. 34 gallons of honey BMC honey <laughs> get the joke but it's really it's been it's been and, and so that food goes into our patient meals it goes to our food pantry and we sell what's left over at a very reduced price to our employees and then finally we're working with a company called community servings that provides medically tailored meals to our most comp 
complex and um, you know patients awaiting kidney transplant, patients with congestive heart failure. You know, if you get out of the hospital after three day or four day admission for CHF, the last thing you want to do is find a grocery store that has fresh vegetables and low salt food. We send those meals to you, um, which we, we think has really helped reduce the readmission rate in certain categories of, of admissions. So you have to start by asking and listening, finding partners, and really addressing, you know, nobody is going to take their hypertension meds if they don't know where the next meal is coming from. You're obviously a, a leading the, our field in, in the kind of work you're doing, and we really appreciate you. you sharing these kinds of examples with us. But one of the things that has always struck me is we seem to get involved in healthcare at a point of crisis in somebody's life, or you know, something happens and they end up with us. Yeah. One of our challenges that I think we really need to wrestle with going forward, and it ties into the partnership phrase that you used, is how do we get in front of this stuff? Yeah. And and how do we not react, but we are proactively working yeah. in partnership with others so that it's not the crisis that puts them on our radar screen. That is such a good question. At BMC, we call that getting upstream. Um, one of our physicians, Dr. Thea James, who leads our community benefits work, she said, picture a river where there's like a hundred little boys coming down the river with a broken arm. Like we would not just fish them out of the river and fix their arm and put them back in the river. We'd go upstream and say, who's breaking those kids' arms? And we need to do that across the board in healthcare. I'll use an example of a program that we're just beginning to think about or start at our, at our hospital. Uh, it's called the Center for the Urban Child. And what it really does is it takes a look at the way pediatric care has been delivered in our country has been largely based on, around the fact that what used to kill kids were infectious diseases. So in the first year of life, your kid goes to the hospital, go, goes to the doctor about 12 times. Then you go once a year. And so your pediatrician, you know, your most trusted healthcare advisor has no, or nurse practitioner has no idea if your child's having trouble hearing or might need glasses. And so they get to kindergarten and they're behind. And low, for low-income kids, this is really an issue. So our goal for the Center for the Urban Child is to reimagine how pediatric care can and should be delivered to best serve the needs of low-income kids with a very specific goal that every child we serve who is able is kindergarten ready by age five. So guess what? They're not behind in third grade and they're not dropping out in high school. That's what we mean by getting upstream. Yeah. You know, one of the challenges I think we face, though, is in some communities, are we trusted? Uh, Brian, that's a really excellent point. I don't think we are trusted. And in the case of the Center for the Urban Child, the first thing they did was establish a parent's advisory board so we could hear from parents what, where we're failing now, even with the care we deliver before we transform it. So I think it's a really important point. And I think that the second point about being trusted really comes back to our role as an employer. Part of our obligation is to really make sure that our employee base reflects the patients that we serve. And not only in housekeeping, but in the across the spectrum of jobs that are available. So we spend a lot of time and have very specific goals around making sure that our management staff, that our clinical chairs who are all, you know, professors of medicine at the BU School of Medicine, that we are as diverse in those leadership positions as we are in everything else. I think that will help with the engagement and then different kinds of healthcare workers. You know, we have so many people who ask you for your Blue Cross card or ask you for your Medicaid card, you know, we Xerox cards. I mean, you know, it's like, wouldn't it be great if those people were actually, you know, they come from the communities we serve, 
you know, can, can we have a much more different and rich dialogue about what it's going to take to get their community healthy and keep people well? Cause it is, it is a team sport and it's a community sport. One individual is not enough. Even how we treat patients, we'll, we'll treat moms in, um, in our internal medicine practice and we'll have no idea what's going on with the kid, which might be the biggest stressor in her life. And the other, the other thing that I've experienced in, in doing work with communities is, um, this notion of, you know, we in healthcare believe everybody needs to be a healthcare provider, yeah. practitioner, uh, expert in order to touch a patient. And, you know, on this issue of trust, what I learned earlier in my career is that community members trust community members. And so we had an opportunity using an Avon grant when I was in Pennsylvania around the issue of breast cancer. Mm-hmm. We had high rates of conditions, breast cancer conditions that that shouldn't exist in the United States. And it was because people weren't accessing mammograms. Yeah. And uh, using that Avon grant, we had women in the community speaking with women in the community in these parlor settings uh, to do that. And, and we continued that model in many other areas. The other thing that I recognized uh, earlier in my career because of the feedback we got from the community is that they don't necessarily want to see a nurse or a doctor. And somebody can just go into their home, mm-hmm. check in, see if they have food in the refrigerator. How do their feet look? Right, right. Are there medications right. in disarray? Right. And then that individual that the community member trusts can then interact with the system. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And we have an opportunity to do that in a very direct way as it relates to the opioid use disorder crisis that we see in our country. We have totally underestimated the impact that peer recovery coaches can have along this journey. And they're certainly not paid for. Again, you can get mm-hmm. detoxed pretty much every day at our hospital. But, mm-hmm. you know, connecting with somebody who has lived experience, we are finding that to be one of the most effective tools in our toolkit to help people maintain their sobriety and recover from this really devastating illness. And the other thing, we're very fortunate at Boston Medical Center to have received a federal grant from the National Institutes of Drug Abuse, where the unit of measure is the communities that we serve. So they have 16 communities, and it's a national study. So there's now 66 communities. And what we're measuring is not how many people recovered in that, but did the community recover and which community mm-hmm. interventions worked? Because this is a pretty complicated disease. And the answers for, for Boston, Massachusetts, or Worcester, Massachusetts might be very different from somebody in Northeast Ohio. So figuring out how to work with communities is something that health systems have to learn and have not historically done well because it's where the answer is for many of the illnesses that we are unsuccessful in treating well. One of the things that you just mentioned was measurement. You know, you talked Mm -hmm. about that. And I know that from the talk you just gave, you and I share a a common concern about how do we measure and, and how can we do this? And what you described was measurement in a particular area. It seems to me that we are always in search of the perfect and we let perfect get in the way of right. good. Yeah. How, how are you guys, beyond the example you just gave, dealing with this issue of measurement? I think that that's a, a, a really interesting and probably one of the most disruptive forces we face. When I look at the, the people outside of healthcare who look at us and say, you guys have got to do better, they often are bringing an analytic platform or framework to the, and rigor to the discussions that they have with us as healthcare providers. So I think what we measure, how we measure it, and your, your point that we're not actually you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be out to the 15th decimal point, but it's pretty obvious that somebody is, you know, if they've been in our emergency room four times in a year, something is going on. Unless they have, have a 
cancer or some illness that would bring them there regularly. And so if we have a way of just flagging that there were four or five ED visits in a year, that should trigger a response from us. Yeah. You know, EMS goes to their home and to prevent an emergency room visit. Or when we discharge someone from the hospital, it's like, you know, you've been in a hospital, somebody's checking your vital signs every 15 minutes, and then we say adios. I mean, it's crazy. And so how do we use relatively straightforward, easily accessible data to drive decision-making and policy changes in our organizations. And our industry has been very slow to adopt to those. You, you mentioned uh, uh, earlier today that you uh, have a health plan at Johns Hopkins. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was at Johns Hopkins, we had a health right. plan yeah. and work with the Medicaid population. Mm-hmm. And what I found is that that gave us an enormous amount of information where we could mix both the clinical information and the yeah. financial information, and uh, it, it was very powerful. Most of our members don't don't have that. But so, they, what well, suggestions would you? Yeah, give? you know, many places don't have health plans, which can be a blessing and a curse, as you know. But right. this year, it's feeling slightly more like a curse, but generally, it's a blessing. <laughs> but I would say that um, all of us work with health plans, and all of us have found a way to produce the information and data that they require for quality payments or to regain withholds, all the work that we know we need to do to sustain our organizations financially. I think the conversation we should be we should be having with health insurers with whom we contract is how are we making this community healthier? There was work done at MGH around the blue uh, around food insecurity in the Blue Cross population. And it is that. it is almost mm-hmm. as high as the Medicaid population. Mm-hmm. So if you work for a city or town and you drive a snowplow, you might have great health insurance, but no cash. And so, and, or you might have a high deductible plan, which has, which has even more challenges with it. So how, how are the incentives that, that our health insurers, you know, bring to the table in the course of negotiation, rather than negotiating around, you know, kind of arcane medically based quality measures, could we have a conversation about social determinants, which will ultimately be a win for both parties in that conversation. And I think that the, these data exist if we're willing to go search for them. But it requires a shift in mindset away from what do we pay for a medical episode to how are you keeping this employee base healthy? And employers get this. Yeah. And so companies like Aon and Hewitt are looking at the employee spend in companies and trying to say, you know, if you do a diabetes management program or if you do have some kind of incentive for people to lose weight, that will actually bring down your, your as the employer, medic, medical spend. And I think the insurers need to catch up. Those are, those are really good points. I'm going to ask you just for a quick answer on this. If there's one long. thing that you would suggest to our members who haven't really leaned into this, uh, you know, SDOH effort and recognition, what would it be? Is to start. It's, um, I, I said this in the earlier discussion, I think it is really, these are simple solutions. They are local. Your providers know the answers. Your community members know the answer. The people in your emergency room who are, who are collecting copays and signing people in know that there are specific steps you could make. If you feel unwilling or unable or can't garner the resources to directly address social determinants that are outside the walls of your hospital, look really hard at your behavioral health spend. Think about who's responsible for BH, what measures you track in that in your organization. Um, you know, what's, what's good quality behavioral health and are you providing it? Because I think that's a very good place for healthcare systems to start. And a lot of the social determinants really do affect people's mental health as much as they affect their physical health. And that's another area that we could do a lot better in as a country. 
Kate, you're doing unbelievable work. And, well, thank uh, you. I, I represent 5,400 people who do unbelievable work. I just get to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for, for sharing this uh, Thanks, with us. And, uh, you know, keep on pressing hard and keep on helping all of us think about this differently. Great. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure talking to you. You've been listening to American Hospital Association Chairman Brian Granulati, President and CEO of Atlantic Health System, and Kate Walsh, President and CEO of the Boston Medical Center Health System. Thank you both for your great insights today. This has been Advancing Health, a podcast brought to you by the American Hospital Association.